Well, welcome everyone to the latest of these videos, which I hope are proving helpful to you as we take time in our home groups in SBC to reflect upon what God is saying to us in our studies on the book of Joshua. If you were with us in church last Sunday, or if you've caught up on the service online, you remember that I preached on another very challenging and at times troubling story within the book, that of Achan Sin, Joshua 7. Uh, this is an incident which follows on very closely from the previous chapter, the fall of Jericho. And having won the battle at that city, or rather having had the victory gifted to them by God, Israel then moves on to the next city to be conquered, that of Ai. However, we are told right at the beginning of chapter 7 about a serious problem which has arisen, a sin which has been committed, which has grievous consequences. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So here then is the most dreadful of situations for Israel. Their relationship with God, so fundamental to their, their status before him, the prospects of their success or failure has now become broken. And because of this, they are now doomed to lose the battle for AI. We know this from the start of the chapter, but the people don't. And it's a feature of how the story is told which has the effect of putting us as, as readers in a position of privilege. As I mentioned on Sunday, there is a tension as well, which lies at the heart of this story. And it's one that I think we need to pay attention to. Because on the one hand, the sin which is spoken of here is portrayed as being one committed only by Achan. And yet, on the other hand, we are told right at the beginning of the chapter, verse one that we've just read, that the Israelites have been collectively unfaithful. And as we read on, there are further details in the story which suggest a failure on the part of others. As Israel prepares for the battle, there seems to be a presumptuousness about how straightforward it will turn out to be. They think they only need to bring along uh, a few thousand soldiers on this occasion. And then when the battle is lost, we have the reaction of Joshua himself to consider. His first response is to blame God rather than to think of how Israel maybe has done something wrong. He ends up complaining about how it would have been better to have never crossed the Jordan. He sounds more like one of the complaining wilderness generation, feels like a back in Exodus, uh, sounds more like them than the man who has chosen to succeed Moses. And this leads to a moment when God pulls Joshua up short and he tells him of the seriousness of what has happened. In verse 10, God says, Israel have sinned. They have violated my covenant. And as is so often the case in Hebrew, what we have at this moment is a play on words. The actual phrase used is they have crossed over my covenant. It's the same word used to describe Israel having crossed over the Jordan a few chapters earlier seems to add to the sense of having let God down so terribly in light of his goodness and deliverance of the people. 
and it conveys as well this idea of, of a line having been crossed. And so God says, if Israel is to get back on right terms with him, they need to consecrate themselves. They need to repent and get back to a, a place of rightness before him. Sin needs to be spoken of and put behind them. And this takes us to the very painful moment when the chapter concludes. When Israel is whittled down, tribe by tribe, then clan by clan and family by family, to the eventual moment when Achan is unmasked as the one who is guilty. Of course, we already know. We've been told at the start, but the people don't know. And you can feel the suspense coming as they wonder who will be revealed as the sinner within the midst. And Achan then confesses. He speaks of how he has coveted, he's taken a robe, silver and gold, and hidden them in his tent. And the chapter concludes with a grim account of the execution, not only of Achan, but also his family. Were they in on it as well? That could be the case. This can't have been a large tent, and we can assume that people were aware of the secret of what was concealed there. And yet it still feels like a tough sentence. Some of us may even consider it disproportionate. And yet at the same time, the story makes clear that what we are dealing with here is a high stakes moment, something very serious, right at the beginning of Israel's time in the land. And as one commentator, John Goldengay notes, when you're living in crucial times, when the stakes are high, you may suffer greater consequences than those who make mistakes in ordinary times. Now other commentators on this passage have made a connection between this story and the other reading that we had on Sunday, that of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Do you remember the couple who are struck dead by God, having held back from the church some of the money they've made from selling property? And you can see the parallels. This is a key moment at the beginning of the church as a movement, just like it's a key moment for Israel early in the conquest of the land. And they need to understand that the holiness of the movement cannot be placed in any kind of jeopardy. There is too much to be lost if that turns out to be the case. So that's just a brief recap on what we talked about on Sunday. And let's take a bit of time now to talk about this passage together and consider its implications for us as a church. And as we do so, I'm going to invite you again to think this through in light of the three questions we're asking every week. Uh, what, uh, so what, and what now? So, the first question, what? What is actually happening here? And as you consider this question, I'd like to consider that we focus especially on the relationship we find here between individual and collective sin. How do we make sense of the apparent contradictions which appear to exist within this passage. The fact that, on one hand, Achan is portrayed as being the only guilty party within Israel, but then the other verses which imply that there has been a collective uh, moral failure on the part of all the people. What is your take on this? You might want to talk about this in light of the passage, but also your own experiences. Can you think of times when you've been in a church which has been impacted by some kind of moral crisis, 
And was that just to do with one individual, perhaps a leader, or were there ways in which the rest of the congregation was somehow colluding? Very often you find that when there is a story of something having gone wrong in a church or a Christian organisation and the pattern of a leader's uh, bullying uh, or coercion or, or, or other problems with the conduct come out, you will hear the same story. People had doubts, people raised questions for quite a while, but there were others who were willing to speak for them, cover up for them. Another thing I spoke about on Sunday was the idea that some churches can collectively fall into a pattern of a kind of besetting sin. There could be an arrogance, there could be uh, a presumption that they're better than other churches, maybe a lack of welcome to outsiders. Are there times when you've seen that happen and are there lessons that you've taken from such experiences? How do churches make sure they don't fall into that sort of pattern? So why don't you hit the pause button now and take some time to discuss that and I'll see you in a couple of minutes time. And now we come to our second question this week. So what? What difference does this make to how we seek to live for Jesus in 2022. Now, if you were with us on Sunday, you might recall, as I said earlier, that we had these two readings. We looked at Joshua 7, uh, and then we also looked at Acts 5, this other troubling story, the occasion when Ananias and Sapphira are found guilty for having withheld from the church some of the profits they make from their sale of a property. And as I said a few moments ago, there are a couple of significant parallels between this story and that of Achan. So most disturbingly, there is the fact that on both occasions, the guilty party pays the ultimate price. They suffer death as a consequence of their disobedience to God. And these are also, as we noted earlier, incidents which occur in, in the early stages of, of each movement. Israel's initial conquest of Canaan, uh, they're just into the land, uh, they're just establishing themselves there. Uh, and then of course in the New Testament, the first days of the early church, it seems that there are foundational lessons that need to be learned early on about holiness and taking God seriously and absolutely relying on him. And then finally, there seems to me to be lessons in both stories about transparency and honesty. So I find it striking that on both occasions, part of the sin of the guilty party is a sort of concealing. It's a pretending to others to be something different than what they really were. Achan hides the treasure from Jericho in his tent. Ananias and Sapphira hide from the church the full amount of the money they've made. And so this raises for me the question of our relationships with one another. How open are we being? What might we be concealing? And how can we forge more honest relationships with one another where we can be more open about things we're struggling with, uh, temptations which we're finding it hard to battle? Perhaps you could take time to talk about this now. Are there any experiences you've had of walking more closely with another Christian when you find that you can be more honest with them, and actually that's been something of a lifesaver for you. And are there other ways we might be able to encourage this sort of accountability within SBC? 
So again, can encourage you stop, pause, um, take some time to reflect on this now. And in a couple of minutes time, I'll come back to you with a final question this evening. And so now we come to the final question of the week. And it's the question of what now? What difference does it make to us as we seek to live in light of this passage as followers of Jesus? Uh, and again, as I did last week as well, I want to encourage you as we get near the end of the study to think about this Joshua passage from a specifically Christian perspective. Because we need to acknowledge again a tension we face as we read these passages. There are important lessons to learn here about God's holiness, about how very seriously he takes sin, and a seriousness which is not diminished as we read on into the New Testament. We've already spoken about Ananias and Sapphira and Acts 5. And yet there are also some aspects of this Achan story we may well think of as problematic, uh, read from an Old Testament or a New Testament perspective. It is hard not to read this passage without thinking of Achan as something of a scapegoat, as one who is made to suffer for the mistakes of the whole community. I read this story and I found myself thinking, was he really the only person who was tempted and who succumbed to the temptation of taking something from Jericho? Was this stuff concealed in other tents? We don't know. But if that was the case, we find ourselves coming upon a pattern of behaviour which we've seen in human communities for years. They pick on one person or one group of people and they feel that by punishing them, they will somehow drive wrongdoing or guilt away. Now we read another story like this in the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of John and it's about a woman who has been caught in adultery and who is about to be stoned like Achan was. She's about to be stoned on her own, takes two to commit adultery, uh, but the man who did this is not with her. And yet another man comes along and he stands beside her and it's Jesus. And Jesus reveals himself and reveals God's nature and God's character as the one who is no longer on the side of those throwing the stones, but standing alongside the one who is about to be punished. And in doing so, he points a way forward to the end of the gospel when he is crucified, when the sinless one becomes a scapegoat for a soul, when the man who has committed no crime bears punishment for a soul. And so as your time this week comes to an end, can I encourage you to read that passage as well? Look at it now. It's in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. And ask yourself, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus who stands alongside this woman and also live faithfully in light of the lessons I take from Joshua 7? It's not an easy question, but it's one that we need to face. So... Let's take some time to wrestle with it now. Why don't you pause and chew that one over amongst yourselves? Well, friends, thank you again for joining us this week. Uh, I hope it's been uh, a fruitful time of conversation. These are big things we've been discussing, but they're important matters and the ones that we need to face. 
I want to finish by praying for you and uh, it's a prayer which is taken from the familiar uh, closing words of Psalm 139 they seem pertinent in light of what we've been talking about this evening because it's a prayer of self-examination a prayer of looking into our hearts uh, being transparent with God and asking us to walk more closely with him in light of what he reveals to us about where we are at this moment in our lives and I'll read them to you now from Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. Investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine me and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong and then guide me on the road to eternal life. Bye for now, friends. Bless you. And I look forward to seeing you again very soon.